Hello and welcome to Delete Delete Engage, the podcast supercharging engagement at work with tips and insights from some of the world's finest communicators. Sophie Jones is Chief Strategy Officer at the British Phonographic Industry, the trade body representing over 500 UK record labels, including Universal Music UK, Sony Music Entertainment UK and Warner Music UK. Together, the BPI's members account for 85% of all music sold in the United Kingdom. Sophie joined the BPI in 2020 as Director of Public Affairs and has also enjoyed a stint as Interim CEO. Prior to that, Sophie's also been Director of Corporate Affairs at Channel 4, Controller of Public Affairs at ITV and Director of Public Affairs at ITN. I chatted to Sophie about her public affairs background and how time spent with politicians has influenced her comms philosophy. We talked about the importance of targeted communications for a trade association like the BPI, when your members include both the country's largest and smallest record labels. We talked about comms firefighting at both Channel 4 and the BPI. We talked about the shift towards streaming and the impact of AI on the music industry. And we talked about the pleasure and pain that goes into organising and marketing the annual Brit Awards and the Mercury Prize, two of the biggest events in the UK music calendar. Enjoy the podcast. So, Sophie, welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage. Hi, it's really lovely to be here. Uh, So, Sophie, a a good chunk of your career has been in the broadcasting industry. So you've worked for ITV, Channel 4, and now the BPI. How how did that come about? Uh, So I had, I suppose, a slightly unusual route into broadcasting. Um, I graduated with a French degree. Um, and I was casting around thinking about what I wanted to do. I knew I was really interested in the creative sector or something in the arts space. I'd done a bit of work um, as a student on arts festivals and theatre and music, very much my passions. Um, I was also very keen political follower. Um, this is our 97, which for those old enough to remember, it was a really exciting uh, political time. When the new Labour Party When the new in. Labour Party had just been uh, elected on a landslide into government. I'd done a bit of campaigning work uh, with one of the candidates in the election. So I was kind of feeling my way thinking, what am I going to do with a French degree? Um, and I took up a temp job at ITV. Uh, 97 was also the time when broadcasting was going through quite a big period of change around early days of digital. Um, I found myself PAing for the digital team. Now, I am not a techie person by any means. So it was a slightly kind of fish out of water set of issues to be doing. But it was a really interesting early sort of stage of developing public policy around digital media. And chance would have it that all of the European legislation that was being developed um, at that time was still written in French. <laughs> um, and hey presto, a French degree came in very useful. And I found myself in this sort of extraordinary moment of realising you could work in television mm. and the creative industries on something really political involving how you kind of represent yourself to a political audience, um, that time in UK and EU, um, and use my French. Mm. Um, so... <laughs> I don't know whether there's ever a normal route in, um, but that's how I kind of found my way into public affairs. And I stayed there for sort of four years after that. The French wasn't quite as useful all the way through that, um, but it it gave me a really kind of interesting insight into public affairs world. And I suppose, well, two things I take from that. One is I'm a huge champion of the value of languages. 
you know, I don't think we teach languages enough or take them seriously enough in the school system. Um, and I think they're wonderful in their own right. Um, and I studied French from a love of the language, a love of the country, a love of its culture. Um, but actually, I think for communications, languages are a phenomenally powerful tool. You know, you're schooled not only in being able to communicate and express yourself in your own language, but in another language. And so actually you come at thinking about language, the way you present yourself, the way you speak, the way you kind of, you know, when you're speaking a second language, you use your other tools than just a language. You use your face, your body, your expressions in, in a in a really um, important way. And I think as communicators, um, that's a really strong set of skills to, to have. So, um, you know, I, I would I would champion language learning all the way as, yeah. uh, as really interesting for people in communications that's fascinating i mean i've never really thought about the influence of having more than one language and and considering the way that different cultures approach communications Mm -hmm. because i guess some cultures are much more um i don't know physical with the way that they communicate and and colorful with the way they communicate french is a very expressive language absolutely um you know even the non-stereotype ways of you know you sometimes think about how how french is spoken but it but it is it's a very passionate language um and i think you kind of learn you learn to speak a language as you say involving the culture and involve sort of you know mirroring the way in which people who are indigenous to those languages speak as well um so i think in you know we might come on to talk about uh this in sort of different forms of communication but you know often in communications you are sort of trying to talk to different people who almost speak different languages you know if I'm talking to a politician I'm adapting what I'm saying and the way I'm saying it to serve that audience which is different to if I'm talking to a journalist or talking to a BPI member yes um so that kind of flexibility to sort of think about what you're projecting and how you're saying things to that audience I think also comes from that sort of language yeah language that's skill. so interesting so on that subject the subject of talking to politicians and your background in public affairs how has that public affairs background and your relationship with politicians influenced your comms philosophy would you say I mean I think it's one thing and it's probably stating the obvious for for the audience uh, that you have but having come in through public affairs and done you know, different kinds of roles, some of which have been more communication, you know, media communications focused. Public affairs is an absolutely vital part of comms overall. And I've done public affairs sitting in strategy teams, kind of more or less in legal teams. Um, and I've done it in policy and comms sitting with, uh, sitting together. Um, that makes most sense to me because I think public affairs and comms are just part and parcel of mm. the same thing. Mm. And in the end, to any of those audiences, I think there's a there's a combination at play between really powerful storytelling and being able to evidence and demonstrate what you're saying is true and has authority and is credible and believable and that's that's how we make impact as communicators to any of those audiences and I suppose that kind of rooting in rooting storytelling in evidence has probably come more out of the public affairs side because when policy and public affairs are working well mm. that should be much less emotional when you're sort of dealing with with the the serious 
kind of civil servants, I suppose, if you like, when you're actually trying to affect tangible change on a really kind of strong footing, you have to marry those two disciplines all the time. Mm. Um, but of course, coming from a public affairs background, you also know you're dealing with a much more emotional and emotive set of stakeholders in politicians where the rational goes out of the window. Mm. Um, and that can be, of course, the case when you're talking to media uh, in a sort of more pure communication sense. So I think public affairs has has sort of taught me, again, to sort of adapt that messaging and adapt to the audience, but using both the kind of emotion, the emotional edge of storytelling with um, the robustness of having really strong underpinning for what, what you're trying to say and, and then sort of tail tailoring that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we've just been, I'm still going through in the music industry, a sort of pandemic led debate about how the streaming economy works how do creators earn in the streaming economy you know a lot of the criticism being leveled at our members who are you know big and small companies but they are businesses and so they you know run as businesses it's a massively emotional um debate mm -hmm. and we can never as businesses take on the personal testimony of an artist saying you know they can't afford to pay the rent or, or, or whatever and so bringing into that that kind of you know, sensitivity to that, but also really rigorous argument that we think ultimately stands up in the court of certainly people in government who are looking at this and trying to make rational evidence-based decisions without unintended consequences, but also we tr we hope plays out to some extent in the court of public opinion. Yeah. So, and and just on the subject of, of musicians and their earnings and, you know, to what extent has the shift towards streaming over tangible music sales um, in the form of CDs or records or tapes or whatever they might have been in the past. How has that affected musicians at the kind of the lower end of the rung? So I think, you know, it's, is it really interesting having come into music when I did, which is three years ago, right at the start of the pandemic? Um, and my, you know, one of the sort of very strong perceptions I had of the music industry was it had been hit, you know, phenomenally hard at the beginning of digital um, advent of digital and you know we all know the stories of what Napster and Pirate Bay and so forth did to almost bring the industry to its knees so you know streaming has has found its way through partnership between you know good platforms who want to invest in and support music legally um, and you know then working with with labels and music publishers and so on to find to find ways to make that work one of the things that has also happened with streaming is it's removed the barrier to entry. So whereas, you know, in the physical days, you still, by and large, had to get your music released mm -hmm. through a gatekeeper in the form of a, a label distributor system. So streaming has kind of taken all that away um, and, you know, Let's hope not, but I could, you know, record a track tonight and, and you know, for, for very little, I can put that out and make it available. So it's a market that's characterised by a very, 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 very long tail of people who are brilliantly able to have a go, but they're adding to an ever-increasing pool of tracks and people. And the eye-watering stat that, that came to light a few months ago is that Spotify reckon they have a hundred thousand new tracks added to the platform every day mm. so the economics simply don't stretch to say that all of those people and all of those tracks can earn a living from 
streaming. Mm. What we're seeing in the sort of, I suppose, more professionalised end of the market, whether they're DIY artists, but at a more professional level of, of development or working with labels, um, is they're actually doing really, really well. Um, and they're doing really well, not just in the very, very top tier that we all know about, the Adele's and the Ed Sheeran's, but they're doing well, you know, into the hundreds, thousands of British artists who are hitting thresholds of, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of streams a year. Mm. That's what you need to be getting to start to be able to get commercial success. Mm. Um, so there's, you know, there's good news there. And we're seeing, you know, we ran some data on it showing there are about twice as many artists who are hitting 10 million streams a year in the UK. Um, and that's about twice as many as would have sold the equivalent number of CDs. Right. So there's there's a lot of real opportunity there. I think the thing that is sort of often forgotten is that you know streaming is only one income source, just yeah. as selling vinyl was only ever yeah. one income source. So of course, in the pandemic, live was hit hard. And if you're a touring musician, you know that was a that was a devastating period. Yeah, that looks to be coming back um, pretty pretty well. Um, but you've got to kind of think of You've got to think of streaming also alongside, you know, vinyl goes up and up and up every uh, year. Cassette sales go up, um, which is a whole other I phenomenon. Know, it's odd, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think it's a sort of collectibles thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. no one's playing them, I don't think, because mm. um, they're so frustrating and we spend mm. your life spooling them back with mm. a pencil. Yeah. I remember. Um, so I think I think there's that sort of people do still love having the tangible thing. It's it's a it's a piece of merch, and of course merch sales are really important. And mm. doing sync deals to be in a TV show or an advert and being played on the radio. So you've got to look at all of that in the round. And for some artists, streaming is what drives their other forms of income because it's a kind of shop window to their music. It drives fan engagement. Um, so no, I mean streaming streaming's been you know a phenomenal um, development for for the industry but one that has you know engendered quite a tricky comms quite emotional comms debate particularly when you throw into the mix the impact of the pandemic yeah and on, on the subject of of major developments um obviously streaming was one now you you were in uh, you're on the channel 4 news last week talking about the impact of ai on the music industry mm. so what what's your point of view on that so we are feeling our way, as I think we all are, you know, right across the economy and right across society. I think we're feeling our way with what what do we actually think about it and what is it going to mean for us? Um, and I think we're asking the question, you know, what can AI do for us rather than what is it going to do to us? Um, but clearly there are there are some big risks out there. Mm. So, you know, on the on the risk side, I think you know, there's the, there's the question of what is an AI training on? And if an AI is training on a creator's music, hard, slaved over with, you know, huge amount of emotional investment and money and all the rest of it, why should an AI just be able to take that copyright, effectively scrape someone's entire catalogue mm. or all catalogue right. <laughs> and use that? Um, to enable AI development without any sort of recognition or recompense. So, mm. you know, we we think first off, you know, the the recognition of that artistry um, and the value of the copyright in that needs to be recognised. So we need sort of commercial models whereby, whether it's licensing, whatever else happens, we also need to be able to keep track of that because there's a danger that, you know, music is being scraped left, right and centre, trained on AI, and we're never able to go back and find it. And a colleague of mine you know, describes that as a sort of, we'll be chasing butterflies yeah. forever, just trying to identify. Um, and of course, 
that training is getting more and more sophisticated all the time. So, you know, there needs to be a, a, an onus on the AI developers to, you know, keep records so that we can we can keep a kind of handle on on where music is being used. Um, and then, of course, there's a question about what is going to be the impact of AI generative content flooding the market potentially with, you know, endless numbers of relatively low quality fairly sort of generic short tracks that are then all competing with human beings who have made wonderful creations um, and they're all sharing in the same royalty pool ultimately Um, and you know I think there are associated issues there about consumers and what do consumers know about what they're listening to what value do they attach to you know the human connection they feel with an artist Um, likewise you know we've seen already sort of tracks that emerge in the likeness of um so beyond sort of normal copyright questions actually what is the right of the artist to their own individuality their own personality their own likeness um and sort of risk of deep fakes and and, and that sort of thing coming, and I, coming I, to the fore. and i guess artists will also potentially be using ar within ai Absolutely. within their own, own albums yeah. right yeah and and you know that on the positive and we we did an event at, um there's a music festival down in brighton uh, called The Great Escape a couple of weeks ago. And we hosted a panel there, which was absolutely looking at it through that lens first and foremost. So, you know, as an industry, I think, you know, there was some criticism ever that the, the music industry was slow off the mark when the internet arrived. And, you know, I, I think everyone is giving a huge amount of thought to this, um, but not in a way that's saying we're anti it. Um, and on the panel we did, you know, they were, there was a there was an artist called Bishy, um, a woman called uh, Rachel from a company called Darcy, who are an AI tech company, all about AI as an assistance tool in composition. Mm-hmm. But it's it's AI assisting and aiding the curative process to happen uh, more efficiently, right. more brilliantly. And some of it is about just taking on really tedious sort of technical tasks within the recording studio or in the writing process mm. you know I've been reading about you know artists saying that actually AI can be helpful in I think Neil Tennant was talking the other day about how using AI can actually just help unblock creators block sometimes you know you can just kind of get it to stimulate an idea and then you kind of off and, and, and run with it so yeah there's definitely balance in there and music's always adapted. You know, we've been adapting to new technologies since the very first days of recording and the introduction of synthesizers and the ability to sample, but all the while ensuring where that happens, human creativity is at the heart of it. Um, and we've signed um, an initiative that started in the US. We're trying to kind of get it rolled out globally called the Human Artistry Campaign. Um, and that's a website with kind of series of principles. And, and it's what it says on the tin. It's all about ensuring as we think about AI, making sure that the human creativity is the thing that we recognise right through whatever we do with this, mm. whether it's, you know, in, in business, in society or wherever policymakers want to go with it. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, so you, know, you you started your career in, in public affairs and, and you did mention there was a strategy element to that role, but you are now chief strategy officer at the BPI. Mm. Um, how has your remit changed since that move into that role? So the, the CSO role at the BPI brings together public affairs, our communications team, who we've worked with very, very closely uh, for a long time, um, and then our research and insights team um, who look at all the kind of, we, we do a lot of work to lead gathering industry data. So we look at, you know, the 
amalgamated trade income that the UK is generating, what our recorded music exports um, are performing like, um, that kind of thing. Um, and then they also do a lot of the events we do for the industry and within our membership. So a lot of those are about looking at trends in music or particular genre. So uh, last couple of years we've done, actually we just, we've done uh, events on sort of new technology in the music recording space, um, uh, event at Abbey Road. Um, and, you know, last year an absolutely amazing event looking at the history of rap and how rap kind of came to become an amazing British phenomenon. So, you know, those are just really lovely events that yeah. are sort of, you know, they are educational at their heart for our membership and for the for the wider industry. And then we have our kind of membership um, uh, team who are, you know, looking after the interests, particularly of our independent members. We've got hundreds of, you know, some really tiny independent music companies as well as uh, the big three brands, Sony, Universal and Warner. Um, and then also does all our international work. So that's a lot of kind of going to international showcases, um, uh, going to uh, festivals in, you know, this, uh, what's it called? South by Southwest in Austin, in Texas. Mm. Um, that's kicking off for the first time in Australia this year. Also out the sort of LA Sync mission, trying to get British music sold into. And will you be going um, to production. all of these? Alas, no. Oh, it's a massive misstep that yes. I've made in not getting myself to. I think my colleague's going to Japan in August, which I am super jealous about. But um, yeah, got to do the day, day job as well. But yes, of course. I will. I will try and get to Austin next year because apparently it's an absolute riot. Um, so it brings all of those those functions together. And actually, although we were a really small organisation. Um, those areas have been, I think, particularly since we've gone hybrid, more sort of compartmentalised than than makes sense. And it's already been really valuable just bringing those functions together and having a kind of good reason to sit around the table regularly. Because, of course, they all feed off each other all the time. You know, we put a great event on. That becomes a communications tool to the wider world. I can go out and tell, you know, there's the media, there's the trade media, but sometimes really interesting things come out of those that we can go wider with. We'll probably do an event, another event on AI. You know, that team worked with us on the thing we did at The Great Escape the other week. That was a great comms moment for us to show, look, we're open to, and innovative ourselves but there are some challenges we need to think about here yeah um equally that sort of proximity to the data that we're gathering to the comms is making our comms better for feeding off the data and insights and all that robustness that comes with it but it's also making sure that the data we're getting is useful to us in telling the story we want we okay. want to tell and i you know you can already see all of the teams are sort of just eyes a bit more open about where their roles fit in the bigger picture. Um, and that's where I see my role is kind of helping the team see where they can kind of add value to each other and add value to what we're trying to do, um, which I suppose is the ultimate, you know, that's what the strategy gets absolutely, for. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So so BPI members account for, I think it's 85% of all uh, music sold in the UK. That's right, isn't it? So the music, yeah, that comes through our membership yes. accounts for about 85% yeah, of yeah. the music. And, and as you said, you've got small labels, big yep. labels, all sorts. What are the challenges of communicating with those members and their different needs? Uh, great question. And it, it is a challenge, um, but it's, you know, it's also just a really interesting part of what we do. Um so, you know, there's a there's a kind of constant job of work to 
not overwhelm people. I've been a member of a trade organisation, um, you know, generally in quite big companies, but you, you know, you don't want to be overwhelmed with constant sort of, you know, and here's another thing. So it's sort of trying to get that regularity of communication right. I think one of the biggest challenges is being relevant to all of them when they've got very different needs. Mm. Um, and that, you know, has to be a sort of two-way street of us checking in and understanding what's bothering them. So, you know, middle of the pandemic, post-Brexit, the bigger organisations, you know, Brexit threw up some challenges, but it was fairly business as usual mm. because you just, you have the infrastructure and the resource to be able to deal with some of those things that the, you know, we all had to adjust to. If you're a small company and you're still relatively reliant on shipping vinyl around Europe and you're hit with a mountain of paperwork that is just hugely administrative that's a really, really big barrier to business. Yeah. And so sort of straddling how much time we, as a small team of BPI, could spend trying to deal with those issues whilst also dealing with the kind of other macro issues around the pandemic and a big debate going on around the streaming economy and all of that, that's a hard set of things to sort of yeah. to balance. Um, and then I think the other thing we also find is the bigger companies are generally more engaged in the sort of big policy or business debates of the time, so the streaming debates we've had, AI similarly, um, you know, they are a massively useful resource to us and we do a lot of work closely with them because they're just at the sharper end of where the impact will hit and having the resource to help us, uh, you know, develop that thing. They've got legal teams, they've got comms teams of their own. So doing that and, and ensuring that we're keeping the smaller members cited on that work but, you know, you can't consult with 500 members on every single issue. No. And often people aren't that engaged until you say, there's a problem. Yeah. Um, we now need to speak to you or something new has happened and it's good and now we can share it with you. But you can't be constantly kind of, you know, getting input from everybody all the time or you'd mm -hmm. drive yourself into the ground. Yeah. Record company bosses have a reputation of being... Um, maybe slightly, you know, they could be megalomaniacs. Maybe um, does that still exist, or have they have they are they a little bit more businesslike? And I, I think the uh, I think the industry has changed a lot, mm. um, as frankly, a lot of businesses have changed yeah. a lot. Um, so I think that sort of slightly cartoonish characterization of a sort of cigar. Puffing yeah. uh, re record label exec doesn't really what exist. What a shame. I was hoping um, to get some horror stories from you. No, uh, I have not encountered any horror stories. There are certainly plenty that we've all read from, the, you know, the good old days of the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think, I think they have become much more professional businesses. Just as I was saying, you know, TV production companies, broadcasters have become much more professionalised right. businesses. Um, and if you go into, you know, record labels these days, they are generally full of you know, amazing, brilliant, talented, pretty young, very diverse. Yeah. Um, but I think in some ways much more diversity, both visible and in terms of social background. Mm. It's a much less, feel, certainly feels a much less sort of Oxbridge um, type environment than perhaps some parts of television. Right, I was um, going to say, yeah. Have done over yeah. in the past. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they are, they are places that are kind of absolutely fizzing with energy and you know people doing brilliant things and the really lovely thing i think it's partly the sort of that democratic nature of music that and you know we can all be musicians in a way we can't all be you know amazing tv producers or actors 
loads of people in record labels are musicians themselves. And yeah. they've chosen to go into the industry in that way. But, you know, it's stuff full of people who are making music, playing mm. music. Mm. Um, and you kind of feel, you can feel that in, in the cultures mm. um, of the place. But, yeah, mm. sorry, I can only disappoint you. <laughs> no, never mind. Never mind. Um, now, you mentioned diversity there and, and you previously worked for Channel 4, which mm. I guess uh, as a TV company was one of the more diverse TV companies and re- more representative yeah. maybe of, of modern Britain. But you also mentioned when we were chatting pre-podcast about the fact that um, a lot of your time when you're at Channel 4, a little bit like some of your time at BPI, has been spent, I think you said the word was firefighting, Mm. managing crises. Can you talk a little bit more about that, you know, that element of the role? Yeah, I think it's something I must bring upon myself (laughs) to be in a kind of uh, of firefighting battle over one thing or another. yeah, I mean, Channel 4, you know, was was absolutely fantastic place to work and absolutely privileged to be there for 12 years. But, you know, a lot of the time I was there, we were battling away against government plans to privatise the company, which, you know, was perfectly within government's right to do that. But we felt really strongly was not in the best interests of the organisation. And so, you know, it became kind of almost the sole focus of chipping away at, at that. And I, you know, go back to sort of talking about where you where you marry storytelling with you know deep pools of evidence to show not only you know what what the sort of immediate impact be but what the kind of longer term unintended spillovers of of that decision might have been so you know that that was a really it was it was actually a fantastic experience in many ways but it's you know it's it's hard going mm-hmm. and and grueling and um, and the last 3 years in the music industry you know we've been in this very uh, long drawn out debate about the economics of music streaming. We're now entering, you know, what we think needs to be a really deep dive re- look at what we think AI is going to mean in terms of uh, disruption. And you know, those are those are opportunities in some ways to tell to tell our story. Mm. I think they they also throw up for me that you know you can get into the kind of world of the irrational, and certainly in the AI space, um, I think. You know, we're gonna we're gonna find ourselves at a, at a sort of crunch point. We've got government talking about they want the UK to be an amazing AI superpower, mm. which of course they want to be an AI superpower, and certainly don't want to let you know other people become AI superpowers and us not have a go there. But that's got to be balanced with the needs of our industry and the other creative industries that could be, um, you know, dealt a blow there. So that's going to be that's going to be pretty fraught, mm. I think. At, at, times with government that Mm. trying to sort of show that actually you know we really really matter Mm -hmm. and if you make this decision that could have really serious consequences over here so again back to being as authoritative um, and demonstrative of where those unintended consequences might might lie Um, and then you know I think sometimes in the roles we do and I think particularly for trade organizations rather than individual companies it's as much about stopping things happening as making things happen. But talking about um, industry bodies tackling crises, uh, the CBI, Mm. what's your view of of the recent crisis engulfing the CBI after a series of misconduct allegations? If you, tricky question I know, but if you were the CEO at the CBI, what would your common strategy be to fix the culture and rebuild customer trust? So, yeah, we... Are actually members of the CBI. We paused our membership um, after the um, allegations and 
uh, incidents came to light. Um, I think, you know, felt only fair to us that the CBI should have an opportunity to come back to us, put things right. But we have we've paused uh, while that process is ongoing. Um, and, you know, I, I say this having been member of CBI in various guises for many years. I think there's a you know, there is a valuable role that it plays in representing the voice of business uh, to government. Um, and I feel deeply for, you know, people innocently caught up in that. You know, there is a body of staff who are no doubt having an absolutely horrible time, um, you know, forever would have worked somewhere tainted by what's happened. Um, and I'm, you know, mercifully glad not to be leading an organisation going through that and, mm. and, you know, heaven forbid that that ever happens. Um and I think the communications, I think, you know, as a as a kind of case study, it it may well be poured over in years to come. And and you never quite know when you're in the eye of the storm. And I think as communicators, you know, you kind of role play these things. You think deeply about how your communications come across in the middle of a crisis. But you never really know until the dust has settled and you come out the other side whether that communication was right or not. Mm. Um, I think from now on in, you know, the next thing that... that the CBI has to do is come back to its membership um, in early June and say what it is going to do to put things right, mm. whether those things are going to be achievable. I think, you know, as a, as a member, they will need to be very, very clear about what is going to change and how they're going to be held to account for that change. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's that's partly about, you know, very specific actions and partly about, the I guess, the harder thing about culture change. Um, but also how how it rebuilds what what having done that it plans to do to reassure us as members if we still are members that the people it needs to be able to influence will also give them the opportunity to do that because mm. you know there's a sort of the other half of this is they they could do all the things internally but actually if the brand is broken or if that trust isn't possible to build back with those people in government it needs to to influence. So at some point, I think we're going to have to sort of understand whether that's that's ever actually going to be possible to yeah. do or whether actually something more radical needs to come out of it. Yeah, thank you, Sophie. Um, you, you mentioned then about kind of communicating to, to staff, obviously, in, in a crisis. Mm. Now, the BPI, you said you're a relatively small company. Is there 40? About 40, yeah. About 40. Um, so what are the big common challenges that you face day to day? I mean, I, I think you've mentioned that you're quite hybrid. What, 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 how, how do you go about it, yeah, uh, communicating it, to your people? It's, it's fascinating, actually, coming from, you know, some pretty big companies. Channel 4 was sort of a thousand people, ITV, you know, many, many thousands um, into a trade organisation. Of course, you know, the sort of world of stakeholders, if you like, you're dealing with is just as, is just as big. And you sort of shift your emphasis to how you're working with those members, whether it's you know, hundreds of tiny companies or representing the interests of big companies who themselves are employing hundreds, thousands of people. Um, and, you know, in our case, many many of the, our members are are also global. Um, but actually, the, the same challenges arise, whether you're talking about a thousand people or 40 people, about the extent to which people know what other people they're working alongside are doing. Hmm. And if they don't, how quickly you can kind of lose um, focus, priority, because you don't really know what what role you are playing within the the bigger whole. Mm. The risk of silo siloed working seems to exist just as much in big and small organisations. Yeah. Um, 
you know, those those were all conversations we were having at Channel Four, and you know, when we were talking back in those days, you know, they were the they were the issues we were sort of trying to confront with internal comms. Um, and interestingly, I think you know the BPI has has always had a kind of bit of an issue around being too siloed. My creation, in, in creation of my role as CSO is you know partly about trying to address that. So. So that's quite interesting itself. So and then I think hybrid working has has just added another layer on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, you know, we're 40 people. We have a brilliant bit of office space in, you know, the most exciting part of town I've worked in, in the middle of Soho. It feels very true to the music industry and it's, you know, it's lovely going into the office. But when we get there, there's 10 desks. We can't accommodate many people in there at all. Mm-hmm. So... You know, you, you take all of those sort of things that were true before and the challenge to then keep people sighted on what other people do. And when you don't have the bump into someone in the corridor at the coffee machine or in the loose and have that, oh, what are you working on? And that just spontaneous chit chat, that doesn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, we're thinking about how do we bring the company together more often as a whole? We're talking to staff about what they want. We're talking to staff about, you know, what's more important, the size of the office we've got, the location of the office we've got. You can't necessarily have, you know, the huge office in the middle mm. of Soho. Um, but, you know, little things as well, like just regular email updates. It's one of the things I've sort of brought in. Very simple mm. since being in the CEO chair. Mm. Just, you know, bringing a bit of of sort of like quite light-hearted updating on what different bits of the organization mm. are doing um so as you know i think it's just a constant job of work of just mm. trying to keep people involved mm. understanding what the bigger piece is cso role you know will be very much in particular when our permanent ceo comes in actually involving people in developing strategy and then keeping them involved in how we're delivering it the BPI organises the annual Brit Awards and the Mercury Prize. To what extent does your year revolve around these two major music events? Well, I've got to say, you know, as events to be involved in and as communications moments, they are phenomenal and super mm. uh, exciting and very lucky to work on them. Um, and the year, the year does kind of revolve around them. Mm. in a kind of slightly fourth bridge way particularly the Brits you know it is unlike anything else in the UK um you know it's often talked about as an award show and actually you know I was very involved uh in it this year in a way I hadn't been before um you know it it is absolutely huge as a production um you know the O2 is huge each artist that performs is effectively doing their own show so you're kind of producing a series of shows in one show mm. and it's not a kind of get up and you know open the envelope and you know give you acceptance speech mm. that's not really what it's about so mm. it really is a kind of spectacular uh music moment and and so the the work that the team i say i was very involved i wasn't um the work that the team do behind the scenes for that event is 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 never really really never ending so you know you come out of the show you're straight back into right what are we doing next year um what's the date going to be yeah it's got to that's got to fit around all sorts of logistics with the venue you know it's a busy busy venue and and all and all the rest of it um working with the broadcast partners and our sponsors and um on all of that so you know it, it it is it is a massive thing um you know this year we had a really 
uh, interesting communications challenge around the categories and the decision we made a couple of years ago to go to a single gender neutral artist of the year award last year was amazing loads of women in cycle Adele was in cycle Adele wins fantastic this year you know not enough women made it onto the shortlists um, that's largely because there just weren't many women in cycle and those that were weren't charting high enough to kind of get into the eligibility. When you say in cycle, what do you mean? So they hadn't released music yeah. in that in that period. Um but you know it threw up a lot of communications debate. Um so you know we're doing a big deep dive into all of the things that sit behind how the awards work, how do we define those categories, how do we structure the eligibility, do we change anything, do we keep it the same, do we do anything at the kind of voting act. So we're looking at all of that um, root and branch because we want the awards to be both the best celebration of British music success that we can be, but also to be diverse and inclusive and bring everybody who deserves to be there to it. So... You know, there's there's a lot of strands of work that, you know, even now we're sort of still working through while we ramp up on the Mercury Prize, which is in September. Yeah. Um, and it's a very different beast. Um, and it's a sort of wonderful I suppose it's more more sort of more of a kind of book a prize for the music industry. Mm. Um more kind of curated and there's a selection panel. And Slightly it's more cerebral. Is yes, it, the... it does feel a bit more cerebral, yes. Yeah. We can stroke our chins a lot more about our yeah. favourite albums, don't we, yeah. than our favourite um But a few fewer, fewer guilty pleasures, though, maybe. There may be fewer guilty <laughs> pleasures. Just the, ones, the ones that we, you know, go on podcast and say is absolutely my favourite artist of the yeah. last 20 years. Um, don't ask me that question. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, they are they are very, very big focus. And actually, they're really important for us. And again, from a sort of comms point of view, I think they're often forgotten that, that they are a huge revenue, particularly British Awards. That's a revenue earner for the BPI which also funds the Brit Trust, which is what funds the charitable work we do to support the Brit School in Croydon, to work with charities like which Nordoff is where and Robbins, Adele came from, which is it? where Adele came from and many, many other wonderful people who, you know... That's was Amy the, Winehouse there as well? Amy was at the, at the school. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an absolute phenomenon um, and we are hoping to get approval from DfE to launch a new similar type of school in Bradford, oh, wow. which we put a bid bid in for, um, and yeah, hopefully in the next few weeks we'll know whether we've succeeded in getting that over the line. Because you know it's wonderful having that in Croydon. We're involved with Elam in the East End as well, but you know we want to do something outside London and say right, you know there's an opportunity here for kids who would never otherwise be able to access that kind of totally immersive creative education, mm. and. You know, going to the Brit School is one of the most joyous things you can do. It just, it's electric with talent mm. and excitement. And these kids just sitting around, you know, they're doing dance, they're doing music writing, they're sort of hanging out in studios, just jamming together, making tunes. I took my daughter to a, uh, who's eight, to a showcase um, a few weeks ago, which was all about protest songs. Um and I don't think she's heard, even compared to being at home, quite as many F words as were <laughs> spoken, which she, uh, El Sung, she, which she absolutely thought was the most hilarious thing ever. But it's just brilliant. It's kind of unbridled creativity and yeah. brilliance. Um, so, yeah, fingers crossed we get that. Amazing. The closest I've ever come to anything like that was watching Fame, the TV show in the 1980s. I'm hoping that the Brit school has moved on a little bit since then. It's, yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's got... Um, yeah, it's got a kind of modern day 
twist. <laughs> and it's utterly, utterly British as well. Yeah. You know, it's 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 kind of earthier, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Fewer leg warmers on display. Absolutely, sure. absolutely. Fantastic. Sophie, that was great. Um, now, there's one last thing um, I'd like to do. I, I asked each of my podcast guests... Yes, this is the bit I'm dreading. Absolutely. Yeah. ...to answer six comms-related questions in around 90 seconds, but I won't be timing you. Six, all six in 90. Well, I won't be timing. If you go slightly <laughs> over, that's fine. Are you ready for that? Okay. All right. Sum up your communication style in three words. Engaging, authoritative, amusing. Of all the comms you receive or emails you get, roughly what percentage do you delete without reading? 75. What was the last message that landed in your inbox that really grabbed your attention? Uh, it was one from government. In your opinion, what's the one thing a business can do to boost engagement? Tell them what's going on. And don't treat people as though there's stuff... I mean, obviously, there's stuff that people shouldn't know. But if people know what's going on in an organisation, then they're engaged and they know what they're doing. And if you know what you're doing and where it fits, you get out of bed in the morning and you think, right, I'm going to go and do that. What makes a good communicator? Openness, asking questions of other people and not taking yourself too seriously. Which communicator, alive or dead, do you most admire? Obama. It's brilliant. Thank you, Sophie. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from Delete Delete Engage, including live updates and early access to each podcast episode, why not sign up to the newsletter at Delete Delete Engage dot substack dot com.